If you said to me to describe this story, I would say, don't believe it, but it's true. I can't even imagine somebody doing something like this. It's also the perfect crime, because sometimes the thing that's blatant right in front of your face is a thing you don't expect. I was going to be a million dollar winner. I was game for something exhilarating. From 1989 to 2001, there were almost no legitimate winners of the high-value game pieces in the McDonald's Monopoly game. Uncle Jerry told me, if you want a game piece, this is how it's done. Hi, I'm James Lee Hernandez. And I'm Brian Lazarte. We are the executive producers and directors of McMillions, a new six-part documentary series on HBO. McMillions is the story of the McDonald's Monopoly fraud case that happened in the 90s, where basically every person who came forward to claim a prize from 1989 to 2001, $25,000 or above, turned out to be a part of a criminal ring to defraud the game. And the whole syndicate was taken down by the FBI in a massive undercover operation. This podcast, we wanted to serve as a companion piece to the series to talk about many of the things that we found to be incredibly interesting that we just didn't have a place for in the body of the series itself. And give us a chance to talk to many of the subjects from the show to see how they react to seeing the show itself. If you haven't had a chance to watch the episode, please do that first. Mega spoiler alert. Many a spoiler beyond this point. Yeah, and so some of the things that you'll learn specifically in today's episode we'll be diving a little bit deeper into the FBI's investigation. We'll learn more about how McDonald's actually became involved with the investigation, which is just still a mind-blowing fact. And then we'll reveal something that such a huge thing <laughs> and so such a ridiculous thing that almost derailed this entire investigation before it got started. Chris Graham, who was the squad supervisor for the white collar division in the FBI. He's actually gonna be joining us in just a few minutes. We're also going to learn a little bit more about Shamrock Productions. Mm, my favorite. All right, so let's get into the episode. This is the McMillions Podcast, episode one. For those people who don't know, how we came to the story. James, could you share with them how this story came to be? This all started with me laying in bed late one night. This is in 2012, cruising Reddit as I'll do right before I go to sleep. And then I saw a TIL. Today I learned nobody really won the McDonald's Monopoly game. And when I was growing up, I was absolutely obsessed with that game as when I was a kid. I was obsessed with McDonald's in general because my first job ever was when I was 16, I worked at McDonald's. And so I immediately tap on the article and it's just a local Jacksonville newspaper blurb that's not very long about it. I it like set me on fire. I needed to know everything about it. I couldn't believe I didn't know about this thing. It happened through the entire time that I played the game uh, and even worked at McDonald's. So I looked more and more into it, really couldn't find a lot. I was very surprised. Finally put a freedom of information request in with the government. 
That took a little over three years to go through. And then once uh, I was able to get the information from the government, I was able to find out what agents were involved, the federal prosecutor. Then I was able to get permission from the FBI to talk to the agents. I reached out to them and they were all very welcoming and they were, I was shocked when they were saying things like, this was our favorite case we ever worked. No one's ever contacted us about this. I started to see how big this story, this thing could be. And that's when I thought of my friend Brian here. What was going through your mind when I first reached out to you about this? I mean, it's, it's gripping. Like, you know, I played the game. The documentary meter in my head was saying like, okay, how are we going to approach this as a story? Like, is it a feature length story? Does it warrant that? Is this just a short little fun story? These guys had an incredible wealth of material far greater than what we had imagined for the story. It's still mind-blowing to, to think about. It, it feels like it was yesterday and 10 years ago. So now let's bring on one of the guys who helped tell this story, Chris Graham. Chris was the FBI squad supervisor for the White Collar Division in Jacksonville. I don't think anybody had really even seen anything like this before. So there's always a risk that I turn these guys loose on this and turns out it's not true and that I've expended resources. But, you know, I think we all realized if this is true, this is, you know, this is big. Chris Graham, thank you for joining us on our first podcast. Hopefully we're not screwing it up too bad. You're not supposed to tell him that. You got to Doug Matthews it. You got to pretend like you've been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, what's the Hollywood saying, you know? Fake it till you make it. Yeah, fake it till you make it. So uh, we've been doing this now for years. Thank you again for joining us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We have to start off with the, with the main question that we've been dying to know. Now that you've seen the first episode, what do you think? <laughs> I, I had no idea that what we were doing was, was so much fun. I don't, remember, I don't remember having quite as much fun as, uh, as Doug Matthews seemed to be having throughout the whole thing. The undercover uh, operation, I mean, that was, you know, that was fantastic and kind of brings it all back like it was, you know, like it was just a week or so ago. You have such an interesting role within this. I mean, you're managing an entire department of white-collar crimes, and you have, you have so many different personalities to deal with as a manager. Uh, what is it like as, as a boss dealing with Doug Matthews? <laughs> when you say Doug Matthews, it's Doug and Rick. I describe them you know, kind of as, as the odd couple of the FBI. When I, when I took over the squad... I never heard much from Rick and, and Doug. I've come to find out, obviously, that what these two were doing was you know, basically working their tails off on, on all kinds of cases. Doug mentions working healthcare fraud, and he's not very excited about it, but how do you assign what cases happen? He was no, he was no fan of, of healthcare fraud. Doug, as an accountant, coming in and, and being thrown back into healthcare fraud, was not his, you know, what, not his vision of the FBI. I'm sure if we go back over his career subsequent to McDonald's, he probably did work, in fact, I know he did work, a lot of other healthcare fraud cases. So, so his complaining about it uh, then was, was obviously just a, a temporary complaint. Plus, it doesn't seem to mesh with his hyperactive personality. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah like, like I said, who knows what he was treated for as a child uh, in, <laughs> in a medical setting. So maybe, maybe some scars there that we don't know about. What is Doug's wife like? I would suspect that Deb, his wife, spends a lot of time rolling her eyes. <laughs> I think if I had to draw a caricature, it would probably have to be him laughing or doing something silly and, and her being the, you know, the respectable suburban mom rolling her eyes. <laughs> well, what's interesting too, though, is that Doug is, is quite brilliant. He came to the FBI as an accountant with an economics degree and teamed up with Rick Dent, who is a mathematician. So, I mean, these bright guys. Rick Dent was the senior agent who, in the series, we, we did not get on camera. And Doug Matthews was the rookie FBI agent. A, a pair like that on a squad is, is a godsend for a, for a supervisor like me. Obviously, you see Doug as the you know, ultra-excited, new, and enthusiastic agent. You know, I, I said you know, he could have, if he didn't make it as an FBI agent, he could have been on an infomercial selling you know, some new kitchen knife in the middle of the night or something. <laughs> I mean, he could still do that, actually. He could still, yeah, he could still do that. And, and you know, I, I, I said, I, I, someday I'd like to meet Doug's mother because I, I, I picture him as a child uh, in his house where his mother would hear him laughing in his room and, and, and think, like, what, what's going on in there and come in and find, find him alone telling himself jokes and laughing. And, and you know, meanwhile, you know, you've got, you've got Rick Dent who, you know, I would almost describe him as kind of a military equivalent of, like, the... The, the senior enlisted, almost like a master sergeant. You know, he's really the guy who everybody goes to to find out how things really get done. He's very quiet and measured, restrained, you know, just patient and, and dogged and deliberate about, about what he was doing. And, you know, to pair those two up and have, you know, that, that excitement and, and, and energy and, and, you know, almost to some degree of creativity coming out of Doug matched up with that level of experience and expertise that Rick had, you know, the end result is obviously a case like this. Rick Dent, however, although we mentioned that, that he declined to be interviewed, we actually did have a chance to meet with him on several occasions. When we met up with him, I could feel him evaluating me, like as a, <laughs> am I a threat? Like what's happening? I could, I could see what was going on. like, I would hate to be on the other side of this table with him if he came to see me for another reason. You know, Rick Dent was really gracious with us in regards to his time, wanted to help us. He just didn't want to go on camera. And well, he said that the reason why he didn't want to participate in the documentary was mainly because there's a lot that he doesn't remember and he didn't want to get any of the facts wrong. And he said that you know the only way that he'd really be able to feel comfortable talking with us is if he broke out all his old case files and reviewed the case. And he said the thought of that actually, you know, gave him heart palpitations. One really huge thing with the investigation and with the show is that meeting with McDonald's that you guys put together. What is it like to be in that room when that's happening? It, it, it was almost a kind of a blind date situation where we wanted to come across as as professional as we could you know we wanted to convey a message that that we had confidence in what we were what we were saying and that we could protect their interests 
how did you feel seeing Doug in his gold suit that he wore that day? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, it was pretty gold. You know, I remember the gold suit, but it, it definitely came back in the seeing it in the, uh, in the episode. I had seen it before, and quite frankly, I'm, I'm sure I had made many jokes about it being, you know, made out of curtains. I think for McDonald's, whether they remember it or not, I mean, I think it was for them an indicator of things to come with Doug. Within that same meeting, Assistant U.S. Attorney Mark Devereaux, he wears, he wears a, a black or pinstripe double-breasted suit every time I've ever seen him. How is it working with Mark Devereaux and then with his personality and dealing with Doug in a situation like that? <laughs> I mean, I think Mark, if you could see, you know, inside his mind, you know, the, the cloud of what he's thinking when Doug walks in, it would probably be Mark Devereaux choking Doug and, and, and ripping his, you know, ripping his gold suit off and tying it around his neck. That would be what Mark was thinking. <laughs> Meanwhile, with Doug, the same cloud, he's laughing out loud because he knows he's, he's got under Mark's skin. And, you know, and that was the dynamic with the two of them that, that just would, would go on and on and on. Almost like a fraternity, fraternity brothers messing with each other. There are a lot of things within the FBI that people just learn from movies and, and assume those are real. One of those things is how you guys tap a phone line. It, it would be great if you could just explain what goes into that. I think there is, you know, there is this misconception that we just, whenever we want to, we you know, flip on a switch and start listening to everybody's phone calls. You basically have to show that there is probable cause, that there is a crime being committed, and more importantly, that these particular phones are being used to facilitate that crime, effectively a search warrant of that phone. Sean O'Donovan, who is one of the FBI agents who we interviewed, who did not appear in this episode, had a couple things to say about this as well. This is actually one of the deleted scenes from the show. In the wire room, we had, uh, had to be one agent per line. We were up at three lines at the beginning and four lines uh, after, after a month. And all that was there were these machines that had the tapes in them. And that's how old school this wire was. We're using cassette tapes, not even, you know, not the old fancy reel-to-reel, but just old cassette tapes like you put in your car before CDs. And you'd sit there and wait for, it to, wait for an interesting call to happen. Then it would ring and you would listen for up to two minutes, and there were time, time limits depending on how the, the judge required it. And then if it was a call where it was a pertinent call, where there was information about the crime being committed, you could listen to the rest, rest of it. After two minutes, if there was nothing bad on the call, you would minimize it, which means shut it off, wait for another specified period of time, a minute or two, and turn it back on and listen to see if they've changed the topic. And they were still talking about things that had nothing to do with the crime, you shut it off and keep doing that, coming back in, listening, and turning it off again. What we specifically listened for were conversations between, between Jerry Jacobson and his associates or to people that they were grooming to be winners. I know they were doing all those in undercover interviews, and they were interviewing uh, the winners, and we got to see some of them that were pretty funny. What we called tickling the wire. That's where you do something to one of the subjects you're listening to to invoke him to make a phone call about it. And there's all sorts of different ways to do it. Um, a visit from the FBI is a great one. And you specifically want to listen, hey, who does he call right after they leave? 
Um, you know, if he gets nervous, someone comes to talk to him about it, the first thing he might want to do is call one of his co-conspirators. So that's called tickling the wire, and I know that they did that several times during this case. Chris, Sean talks about tickling the wire. So what really goes into putting something like that into action? This concept of tickling the wire, usually it's, it's more commonly done when, you know, the, the wire is less than productive and you may be reaching a point where you need to cause something to happen that gets discussed on the wire. In a way, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, too, because if your plan to, quote-unquote, tickle the wire is flawed and the bad guys figure out what's going on, you're listening to them talk about how innocent they are and how they've done nothing wrong, and, and you're stuck with that. It's, it's not something to be done lightly, and, and certainly it's not something that you know, you would, you would cross the line in any way that is, starts to move into that entrapment area that, that we, you know, we strive to stay completely away from. This entire investigation was almost stopped before it started due to something with a wiretap. This is one of our favorite deleted scenes, actually. So there's this order that needed to be faxed over to the phone company in order for the tech guys to get plugged in. We sent it across to this company, which turned out was located in Atlanta. I want to say within an hour, our phone rings from a phone company who's like, uh-oh, I think we might have a problem. Turned out, out of all the phone companies out there that Jacobson's wife, current wife, was the administrative assistant to the person in charge, president or owner of that particular phone company. Her function was to go over to the fax every day and pull off these faxes. But fortunately for us, she had taken off that day. Somebody was sick in her family. She was off. And so we sent more than a few people from the Atlanta Division. We found out all this stuff about, yes, yeah, she hasn't seen it. No, I have it. She's not going to see it. It's all good. So we're lucky on that particular set of circumstances because before we got started, it could have been killed. God, I can imagine, like, what a big blow that would have been. <laughs> to quote Doug Matthews, how crazy bullshit is that? <laughs> As a supervisor, what is your reaction to that? Who do you blame? Like, what, what, what's happening? I blame Doug Matthews 100%. No, <laughs> yeah, no it, 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 it's, it's just these things, you know, it's Murphy's Law. You know, if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. And then even the, the outliers happen. And it kind of comes with cases. If, if, if you go through a whole case and things like this don't happen well all that means is that something happened and you didn't you know you weren't aware of it thank goodness in this case you know we became aware of her being out that day had she taken it who knows how we would have handled it you know we dodged a bullet what would have happened if she actually would have received that if she was smart she would have kept a low profile processed it and then told him We'd have been 10 days into the wire and had to shut it down because it would have been silent. He, wouldn't, he probably wouldn't have even gotten on the phone. We would have figured it out, and then we would have been forced into a very forward-leaning 
interview strategy, try to knock out some search warrants, cooperative witnesses. I mean, you, you know, you got at, at this point 20, 30, 40 different winners, recruiters in the middle. Somebody's going to flip. It just would have been, it would have been nearly as fun and <laughs> would, have, would have taken a long time. This fax that went to the, the phone company where Jerry Jacobson's wife was working. There's no way that you could have predicted that. Or, I mean, I guess like in due diligence, you could have done research and, and learned about Jerry Jacobson's family, a significant other, and found out that she worked at that company. This is 2001. There is such a, a massive difference now between what you can gather online about subjects of cases and, and, and others and what there was back in 2001. Yeah, in 2001 there was, there was a few databases here and there that you would check, but a lot of this was phone calls and, and, and physical surveillance and things like that. So I, I would venture to say that had this case been going on today, the preliminary workup and the, the investigation into Jerry Jacobson through you know social media and 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 the things that are available now online may very well have disclosed that his wife was an employee at that at that phone company you know i'm I'm speculating that's just such a fundamental difference between then and now so what other isms do the FBI have? I mean tickling the wire when we first heard that thought oh, that <laughs> sounds so awesome like the, like straight out of a movie. What else do you got? <laughs> I got, I got to think about that. There's a, there's probably a whole book of them. There's something you mention in the show, and, and we actually never really talk about it, but you mention a 302. Yeah. What, what is that? The long and short of it is, is a report of an investigation. So you, you could be a victim, let's say. You know, you, you've been a victim of a check fraud case. I come out, I interview you, and I take notes, and I come back, type up, a report of that investigation, and it's 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 a summary of that interview, in in, in a fair amount of detail. It's it's not a transcript per se, but but it covers it covers all the relevant facts. You know, it identifies who spoke and when, where we were, and the date and whatnot. You know, a good FBI file has a lot of FD 302s in it, a lot of interviews. Uh, it could also include you know the the service of a subpoena or a surveillance that's conducted. You know, really anything, you know, anything we do should be documented on a 302. And there's a, a skill in writing them, as, you know, I think as Doug will attest to, you know, early on in our relationship. You know, I went through a lot of, a lot of red pens on some of Doug's work products. <laughs> he used to accuse me of bleeding all over them. And, and I think you told us at one point, Rick Dent, his 302s were the template that the FBI would follow almost. Rick Dent really was the standard by which anybody in that office or, or any white-collar agent, if you wanted to learn how to write a 302 on a, on a white-collar case, you could look at anything that Rick had written. Doug's undercover operation was obviously something that was incredibly effective and everybody got behind. But did you ever have a chance to go undercover yourself? What Doug did was we would call it a cameo appearance. What that means is it's, it's kind of a, a one-time, you know, one or two times, very short duration appearance, as opposed to 
somebody who is a certified undercover agent, they go through an assessment, they go through a school, that becomes a key part of what they do every day. So a, a one-time cameo, every FBI agent or most of them do a little of that, you know, one or two times here or there, you know, they need somebody to kind of step in as a, an accountant for a day or a meter reader, things like that. And we all, you know, we all kind of did a little bit of that. Yeah. What were you? <laughs> what was I? I? I was a meter reader. <laughs> really? Yeah. Go, go around, go around and read. It's a way, way to hang around a neighborhood without, uh, without causing a lot of alarm. Wow. So, so Shamrock Productions got started. I know you, you got a kick out of the name. Do you have any idea how that name came to be? When Doug and Rick came to me with, you know, with this idea of a production company to go out and record these winners, retell their story, we all thought it was a great idea. And they came up with the name Shamrock Productions because you're just lucky. I don't know how Doug came up with, with that. We were actually surprised to find out as well the origins of Shamrock Productions. Amy Murray, who was the marketing executive at McDonald's, actually had a great personal story. And this was one of the deleted scenes from the show. Doug loved naming everything something with McDonald's. And so he named the production company Shamrock Productions after Shamrock Shakes. And that was really ironic for me because actually Shamrock Shakes are how I came to McDonald's. I'm from Philadelphia and my dad used to work for the Philadelphia Eagles, whose colors are green and white. And so he had contacted McDonald's about doing a fundraiser to raise money for this house for terminally ill children. Uh, and Shamrock Shakes were the promotion at the time. So he's like, I'll give you players that have green jerseys on to promote this if you give some of the money to this house for terminally ill children to stay while they're being treated. Uh, and McDonald said, we'll give you all the money of Shamrock Shakes if you call it the Ronald McDonald House. So it's sort of the whole start of the Ronald McDonald House story. So when Doug told me that he decided to name it Shamrock Productions, I was like, wow, that's uh, unbelievable that you would pick that name. With you guys working with a, an entity as large as McDonald's, what goes into that? This was different because you had a billion-dollar company, a Fortune 100 company, presumably as a victim. Usually in white-collar cases, you have, you know, the victim is the government. Government programs are defrauded. Or innocent people, you know, elderly who are defrauded. And, and in this situation, with a company like McDonald's, we had to be cognizant uh, of their, you know, of their reputation, of their brand, you know, we understood early on that they, you know, that they had some potential legal exposure down the road from uh, disgruntled folks here and there. We ultimately had to come into a partnership with them and tell them what we could without going overboard. And, you know, we kind of expected the same thing from them. We got a, obviously, critical cooperation and, and information. With them agreeing to work with you, it felt similar to what it took for them to agree to work with us on the documentary series. Why do you think they did it? When they say that we as a company needed to do this because it was the right thing to do, that we owed it to our customers, I, I absolutely believe that. 
that was a constant theme throughout, you know, our dealing with them. In that initial meeting, and, and there was always this outside possibility that somewhere within McDonald's, there might have been somebody who, you know, knew of this or was, was part of it or was working, helping Jerry. They realized it. You know, we realized it. The games made a lot of revenue for them. They were, they were popular. It would make no sense for them to in any way arrange for winners not to be winners. So, you know, we put that aside pretty early. But, you know, there was always this on both sides, particularly their side. You know, there'd be somebody on the inside that was involved. And fortunately for, I think, for them and, and really everybody, that was not to be. In this particular case, the decision to work with the FBI had to happen really quickly, like within a matter of days. And that's just not how they operate. But it was uh, Jack Greenberg, who was the CEO at the time, really initiated this need to participate immediately. The head of McDonald's security, Rob Holm, he was in the room in Jacksonville when you uh, guys first laid everything out to him. He was a big proponent of, we should do this. You know, their decision, really almost to partner and, and help us and work with us in the case, their understanding of our need to go into a proactive mode on the case and, and continue and do the wiretap and the undercover, that uh, they had enough experience to see that, hey, without that, you've really got a quarter of a case that may or may not make it. And we'll leave a whole lot of questions unanswered and, you know, culpable people may slip through. They understood that it was not, was not a frivolous or, or over-the-top request and that there was a legitimate investigative and legal need to do it. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. This, is, this has been so great. It's great to go back and relive it. So I uh, appreciate you guys giving me the chance. And are you enjoying your retirement? No. <laughs> <laughs> I miss it. Definitely miss it. Thanks for taking the time. We're excited to see what you think about the rest of the series. Yeah, likewise. I'm looking forward to it. That's it for episode one. That was a lot of fun. We're excited about next week's episode where we introduce the criminal side of this story. Including how the mob got involved. If you have any questions about this episode or any future episodes coming up, please contact us. McMillionsPodcast at HBO.com. McMillions spelled with an S and not the dollar sign, which we have everywhere else on the internet and in the real world. If you want to record your voice and email it, we can actually play your question on the show. Don't forget to check out McMillions airing Monday nights at 10 p.m. on HBO. And see you next week for episode two of the McMillions Podcast. This podcast was produced by FunMeter in conjunction with Unrealistic Ideas. For FunMeter, I am Brian Lazarte. And I am James Lee Hernandez. Joe Fenstemaker produced this episode. Our consulting producer is Barry Finkel from Pineapple Street Studios. The music heard here comes from our actual series and was composed by Pinar Toprak. Unrealistic Ideas is Mark Wahlberg, Stephen Levinson, and Archie Gibbs. And of course, none of this would be possible without the amazing support of HBO. You can find the McMillions podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, the HBO Go and Now apps, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.